By the way, you just reminded me, we had seven points of summarizing where we've come, and then five points making the case for the early church's view that's of That's an even 12. That, that's 12 after the 12 apostles. Well, good. Well, hello and welcome to another laudable and praiseworthy episode Amen. of uh, On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I being Matt Swaim, he being Ken Hensley, we're with the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, come especially visit us in our online community, uh, community.chnetwork.org, where we hang out and have all kinds of discussions, much like the one that we're going to have today on Christian Authority. Ken, how are you? I'm great. Doing good. All right, so... I'm all we, cranked up like I usually am. <laughs> well, good, because um, here we are in episode nine about Christian authority, and we haven't even gotten to the Pope yet, and we're not going to get to him today. But uh, I guess we're doing a lot of summary um, and, and really kind of tackling, among other things, this whole notion of, you know, well, did the church just completely fall away and lose all its pretense yeah. to authority, you know, as soon as the last apostle died? There's, these are big questions that a lot of Christians deal with, so I guess we better jump right in. The series title, Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium, there's so much involved in the in defining the three and also, you know, explaining how they relate to one another and what kind of authority we talk. There's so much to do that, you know, I, I just can't take moving forward too quickly. And so what I want to do next week, yeah, in episode 10 of this series, we are going to begin to talk about Peter and the papacy. But before that, what I wanted to do today, Matt, was, was as succinctly as I can, which is Doubt, doubtful right there. I want to attempt to summarize where we've come so far in this series. And and yet I'm still going to, I'm going to leave out tons, but I want to try in a certain way to summarize where we've come so far in this series. And, and then to begin to, or then to begin to make the case for the fundamental reasonableness of the Catholic conception of authority as residing in the inner working of scripture, tradition, and an authoritative magisterium led by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So first of all, uh, what I'm referring to is a succinct a summary, and I'll just kind of run through it. First of all, it makes sense to think that the earliest disciples would have accepted the inspired authority of the Old Testament and the inspired authority of the apostolic writings. And of course they did. And Protestants believe this. Catholics believe this. This is still what the church teaches, continues to teach. So there's no debate here. Quoting Dei Verbum from Vatican II, this lovely sentence, sacred scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Point two, it makes sense to think that the earliest disciples would also have accepted the authority of everything the apostles taught them, whether it had been written down or whether it was by word of mouth. After all, St. Paul commended the Thessalonians. This is a passage we've read before. St. Paul commended them for receiving his teaching when he first came to them, quote, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Point three, it makes sense to think that the earliest Christians would have treasured, therefore, would have treasured everything the apostles taught them, 
and would have wanted to stand firm in that teaching. That is everything they had taught them, whether by word of mouth or in writing. And Paul says this. In fact, Paul commanded the Thessalonian disciples to do precisely this. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. But even if Paul hadn't commanded them, I'm, what I'm saying is it's reasonable to think that they would have. Okay, so, so far, it's reasonable that they would have accepted Scripture. It's reasonable that they would have accepted the authority of the oral teaching of the apostles. It's reasonable that they would have wanted to treasure and stand firm in both, in everything the apostles had taught them. Okay? Point four in our succinct summary. It makes sense, therefore, and this one goes a little deeper. It makes sense, therefore, to think that the knowledge that the earliest Christians had of the apostolic teaching would not have been a knowledge based on their writings alone, or even primarily. That is, the knowledge that the earliest Christians had of the apostolic teaching would have been even more fundamentally based on their oral teaching, on the example that the apostles gave them when they met with them and taught them and lived with them and established the church, their churches, and the institutions that the apostles established when they were with them. And I think it's helpful to remember at this point this is a, an era that is 1,600 years, well, 1,500 years before the printing press, yeah. right? So that's the way that people remembered things and talked mm -hmm. about things and shared information was through oral tradition and oral teaching. And writing was just something that, you know, was still in early stages of development as far as the world no, was concerned. No printing press, not to mention extremely expensive, hard to copy. You know, the idea that everybody would have copies of anything or that, any, that everyone could read, um, yeah, yeah, good point there, okay? So it makes sense then that the knowledge, I'm, I'm focusing on that, that the knowledge that the early Christians had of the apostolic doctrine would not have been a knowledge based primarily on their writings, on their letters, but much more foundationally on what they had been taught, what they had learned, what they had preserved of what the apostles taught them um, by their preaching, by their example, by the institutions that they established. And this is what the church teaches. Again, quoting from Dei Verbum, in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways, in writing by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing, and orally by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received. Point five in our succinct summary in fact, it makes sense to think that the earliest Christians would have read the letters that they received from the apostles in the light of what they already knew from the apostles' teaching, from their example, from the institutions they had established. In other words, it, it, it just makes sense, Matt, that the tradition would have functioned as an interpretive key, helping the churches to understand what was being said in the letters the apostles sent them. And Ken, Even just as to, you and I naturally would. Yeah, and, and Ken, uh, just to uh, you know, kind of illustrate this in, in the context in which I uh, would have heard the scriptures, you know, in the Church of the Nazarene and Free Methodist churches and, and elsewhere, um, when we would hear something preached on, uh, the pastor, if he was worth his salt, would say, well, you, what you have to understand about what was going on in the culture at the time that Jesus said this, <laughs> yeah. or what was happening in society when Paul was writing. Here's what the community was like in Ephesus. Here's what Ephesus was known for as a mm -hmm. town. 
all these people would have had that embedded into them without having to go to a bookstore and pick up, you know, some expository preaching manual. Right. No, that, that, that's a very good point. I mean, even to this day, we read the words of the various letters of the New Testament in the light of what we know about the historical background, the, you know, the, the grammatical, syntactical background, the language, the culture, the time. And, and, and all I'm really saying here is that it, would have, it, it makes sense to think that the earliest Christians would have read their letters in the light of what they knew from the apostles' teaching to them from their example, from the institutions they established. And, and this, again, is what the Catholic Church has believed from the very beginning. When St. Vincent of Lorraine wrote the following, and I'm going to read a bit, he was expressing a worldview that, that appears to have been universal in the early church and can be seen from the earliest post-apostolic writings. Um, this is what I mean. He's expressing a worldview that was universal. Listen to what St. Vincent said. But here someone perhaps will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of, it, of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with it the authority of the church's interpretation? That is the tradition, that is what the church knows from the apostolic teaching. For this reason, because owing to the depth of Scripture, all do not accept it in one in the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. And I think of Luther right there saying... I was about to say, where was... We need St. Vincent of Lorraine at the, you know, Diet of Worms and the, you know, Council of Trent. There are as many views as there are heads now, he's complaining after the Reformation. Well, St. Vincent says, yeah, all do not accept it in one the same sense. One understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable, that is the Bible, of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. Then he draws the conclusion, therefore, it is very necessary that the rule for the right understanding, that's important, the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and the apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. And this is St. Vincent, again, writing um, within a century after the canon of the New Testament has been formally established. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this is, the Bible is brand new. I mean, the books are not new, but the actual put-it-all-together-in-one-book concept is not a very old concept. Yeah, when he's I, writing it's, it. it's something that's been slowly developing and evolving over several centuries. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly true. So, so in other words— I'm, we're just approaching, we're summarizing where we've come in all these previous episodes by just thinking about how reasonable it is that they would accept the authority of Scripture. Okay, got that. That they would have accepted, that is the early church, the early Christians, they would have accepted the teaching, the oral teaching of the apostles as authoritative. Okay, got that. Um, that they would have wanted to stand firm and they would have wanted to treasure and hold fast to both. Okay, got that. Um, that they, in fact, would have interpreted the writings in the light of what they knew. That makes sense. Got that. Um, you know, it's this goes on and on, and, and that the earliest Christians would have read these in the light of what they knew. Um, okay, and then sixth, it makes sense to think that as time passed, the disputes and, and disputes of various kinds arose in the churches that had to be resolved. It makes sense to think that the church would have looked to its ordained leadership, meeting in council to examine the scripture to examine the tradition of the churches in regard to what it taught, and to resolve the dispute for God's people, rather than each one of them 
resolving it for themselves. Th this makes sense because, after all, this is exactly the model that they had received from the apostles when the apostles and elders met in council in Jerusalem to resolve the very first serious theological dispute of church history, um, referring again to Acts chapter 15. Yeah, if you're ignorant of history, you might think, well, they're just meeting in councils as a bunch of bureaucrats trying to vote on the truth, when in fact they're meeting in councils and coming all together, the heads of each of these congregations, because that's what they saw the apostles doing. <laughs> so <laughs> That's the... That's the example that they were given, and it makes sense that they would have thought in, in terms of that. And, and now we come to point seven, and this is where we're going to be focusing our attention um, for the remainder of the episode today. It makes sense to think that the church would have put its trust in the Holy Spirit to lead the magisterium at those times. Okay, let me say that again. It makes sense to believe that the church would have put its trust in the Holy Spirit to lead the magisterium at those times. And, and here really, Matt, is where we come to, I can say, the fundamental difference between how Catholics and Protestants view the church. Catholics, to put it in a nutshell, Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit was in the church and that the Holy Spirit was leading the church in its development of the hierarchy. We talked about last week, where in the New Testament, you've got the apostles running the show, and under them elders slash bishops and then deacons. And yet over the first two centuries of the church, you, you have this development of, 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 of bishops being elevated above elders and deacons and being viewed as the leaders to where near the end of the second, uh, by the end of the second century, you have one bishop in every major city ruling over the presbyters. Well, Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit led the church in that development. Protestants do not. And therefore, Protestants in general believe that, that that's an example of the church, the Catholic Church, departing from the, uh, from the teaching of the New Testament. Catholics believe that the Holy Spirit was working through the magisterium, leading the church to preserve the apostolic faith intact, um, to develop its doctrines of baptism, um, of the real presence of Christ, of the Mass as a sacrifice, of the priesthood, all the doctrines of the Church that were being being formed up and formulated during those early centuries, the Catholic Church believes the Holy Spirit led in that. Protestants do not. Um, in fact, when you think of it, what was the Reformation except the rejection of this very idea that the Holy Spirit had led the Catholic Church in the development of its hierarchy and the development of its doctrine? Um, that's what the Reformation was all about, saying, no, we're going to step back and we're going to stand on Scripture alone. We do not trust that the Holy Spirit had led the church. But even then, they're not saying that as a group, and they're not agreeing on when the Holy Spirit stopped le leading the church, and we're not agreeing, uh, again, like you look at John mm -hmm. Calvin, uh, he's not a, even willing to agree on which points the Holy Spirit was involved and not involved. Uh, you know, we we. I feel right. like we bring this up almost every week where Calvin says, well, mm -hmm. these councils and everything, they're fine insofar as they accord with Scripture, by which he means insofar as they line up with what I think the Bible says, <laughs> right? Well, and, that, that's what it ends up meaning. Yeah. Um, that's what there, it ends up meaning. Yeah, but there's one other thing I want to throw in on uh, sure. on top of all of this, and it was occurring to me as you were talking about it makes sense that they would uh, you know, commit uh, the teachings the written and the oral teachings of the apostles, that they would have remembered them, they would have preserved them, that they would have done what the apostles had said, they, they would have uh, seen the apostles alive and in the institutions that they founded. Um, 
what I'm not seeing is that they w- would have eaten what the apostles ate for breakfast. They would have rooted for the athletes in the Olympics that the apostles rooted mm-hmm. for. Um, it's on questions of faith and morals. That's going to be coming into play a lot more when we talk about the papacy. But it's clear that the mm-hmm. idea of apostolic authority has to do with doctrine and the moral life. It doesn't have to do with a whole bunch yeah. of other you know, wild and crazy arbitrary stuff. That's where it's all being preserved. Uh, that's what they yeah. meant by the, by the deposit of faith. Yeah, it's it it's in line with what, what with what we've said in the past about the fact that Paul seems to have believed that the substance of his doctrine would could be res, would be preserved within the church, um, guarded by the Spirit and passed down, not not anything else. And so, yeah, it's it's the same thing. And this is going to come into play. So I'm, I'm glad you brought brought that up. Okay. Before making the case, because this is where we're going to turn now, okay, before beginning to make the case for the Catholic view, that is of the Holy Spirit working through the magisterium and leading the magisterium, um, I just want to reiterate that this was indeed the view of the early church. Um, in past episodes, we've read a ton of, of, uh, of um, quotations from the early church fathers, but just listen to how early church historian J.N.D. Kelly how he summarizes the early church's view on this exact subject. I'm reading now from his classic work, Early Christian Doctrines. This is how he summarizes it. Where in practice was this apostolic testimony and tradition to be found? The most obvious answer was that the apostles had committed it orally to the church where it had been handed down from generation to generation. Irenaeus believed that this was the case stating that the church preserved the tradition inherited from the apostles and passed it on to her children. It was, he thought, a living tradition, which was, in principle, independent of written documents. And he pointed to the barbarian tribes who had received this faith, quote, without letters, quote, unquote, without, without letters at all. They had received it from the church. Unlike the alleged secret traditions of the Gnostics, It was entirely public and open, that is, this teaching, this tradition, having been entrusted by the apostles to their successors, and by these in turn to those who followed them, and was visible in the church for all who cared to look for it. Irenaeus makes two further points. The identity of the oral tradition was guaranteed by the unbroken succession of bishops in the great seas, that is, the great churches, going back lineally to the apostles, And then second, an additional safeguard was supplied by the Holy Spirit, for the message committed was to the church, and the church is the home of the Spirit. Indeed, the church's bishops are, in his view, spirit-endowed men who have been vouchsafed, and I'm quoting now, an infallible charism of truth. Okay, not that Irenaeus was saying that every bishop walks around speaking infallibly, but that when they were acting together, especially in, in, a, in an ecumenical council, in council, and especially as we're going to get to next week as they're speaking in union with the Bishop of Rome, that they were vouchsa- vouchsafed an infallible charism of truth. Okay, because of the unbroken succession, because of the unbroken succession of bishops, because of the Holy Spirit in the church and working in a special way through the bishops, what J and D Kelly is saying, and looking to Irenaeus and summarizing this as the universal view of the early church, the church could be trusted to be in possession of the truth. Yeah, and I anyone think anyone wanting to find it—that's an yeah. important point that you bring up. That uh, not just in success, or when they when they speak 
in union with one another, but also in union with the people that came before them. Um, yes. And, and, and that's, I think, a huge point to make here is that even if there's something that develops, that development will be in continuity with what came before. So when I plant my tomato plants, it looks like a seed, right? Like a little tomato seed. And then it looks like mm -hmm. a sprout. It looks very different than the seed that I put in there. Yeah. And then it starts to get these kind of like fringy leaves that looks very different than it looked like after week one of sprouts. But it's all in continuity with the thing that came before because it's yeah. accountable. The seed of what it's going to be is there from the yeah. beginning. So even when these people are acting um, in ways that are introducing something new, a new concept, a new word, that new word mm -hmm. is in harmony, in continuity mm -hmm. with everything that came before. Um, so, and that's important because I think yeah. that, uh, yeah. again, my, my impression as a kind of an armchair church historian who was just ticked off at the way American evangelicalism was going, was that, well, people just added stuff here and there based on what they liked and didn't like and what the political winds were at the time, when in fact, no. there's continuity. So. Thanks. Thanks for that. Okay. This is how the early church thought. And I guess it's, I would have to say at this point, I mean, you know, reading J.N.D. Kelly here and his description of how the early church thought, this is not how the Baptist church thinks. This is not how non-denominational evangelicalism thinks or the Presbyterian or, this is not how Protestantism thinks. And yet he describes very succinctly how they thought. You've got the writings of the apostles. You've got the oral teaching. You've got it preserved in the church. You've got it handed down. It's guaranteed by the fact that you have this succession of, of um, you know, that is the succession of bishops coming down from the apostles all the way from the beginning. And you have the Holy Spirit in the church preserving the truth and guiding the development. So it's just a very different worldview. This is how the early church thought. But now the case, why does it make sense or why did it make sense for them to think in this way? Why does it make sense for Catholics to continue to think in this way? That's what I look at now because non-Catholics will often say things like, you know, look at the old covenant people of God, Matt. They were going astray constantly. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus just blasting away at the scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees for their misunderstanding of the word of God, that is the scripture of the Old Testament, and their adherence to human traditions is blasting them. Why do you think it should not be the same for the New Covenant Church? That's, this is something I hear continually. And so I want to give now, okay, here are five reasons, and I could have made more. I was thinking about making seven, so we'd have seven summary points, seven reasons, spiritual perfection coming and going and all that. But anyway, it would have been too long. But here are five reasons that it would not be the same, you know, to simply say, you know, comparing the Old Covenant with the New. And the first is because of the radical difference between the Old Covenant and the New. The radical difference between the Old Covenant and the New. In Jeremiah 31, announcing a new covenant to come, the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them. Okay, first thing he says, this is not going to be the same. It's not going to be like the covenant I made when I led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then you flip over to Ezekiel 36 and the Lord adds to this that when the new covenant is established, he's going to put his spirit within his people and move them, you know, drive them, cause them from the inside to walk in his ways. So the, the first thing I want to say here is simply this. The new covenant is the covenant of the spirit, 
coming in its fullness. And as such, it is infinitely superior to the old covenant. You've got that, but you've also got, um, and this is to bring it back to that point you were just making about Mm -hmm. how, well, the Pharisees and the scribes, they botched the old covenant over and over again and made a mess of things. And Jesus was constantly upbraiding them and telling them about their business. And, you know, that's half of his teachings is critiques of, you know, Mm -hmm. what they're doing. But Jesus also says in, uh, in Matthew 23, you know, you got to do what they say. They have authority because they sit on the seat yeah. of Moses. Yeah, so uh, there still was an do, there was a recognized there was a, authority there was, position. They, yeah. It was a position of authority, and one that, despite all their flaws, Jesus mm-hmm. told his followers to follow, which is something that is very easy to miss. And it's not because they are talented people. It's not because they are holy people. It's because they sit in the seat of Moses. Now, this is going to come into play more, <laughs> right, when we talk about the papacy, but it's a well, this even is the a old good, covenant held. Yeah, this is an important point because even though the old covenant then is very, very different from the new covenant, and, you know, as Jeremiah says, you know, the new covenant, it, 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 he's going to write it on, on your heart. Still, there was an authority there. But listen to how Paul compares the two covenants in 2 Corinthians 3 because this kind of fills out what we're saying here. Paul says, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if the dispensation of death, he's referring to the old covenant here, carved in letters of stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of his brightness, fading as this was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater glory? Referring to the new covenant. For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor, Indeed, in this case, what once had splendor, the old covenant, has come to have no splendor at all because of the splendor that surpasses it. So this is point number one in the case that that I would make. Given this understanding of the new covenant, it made sense for the early Christians to believe that the church's ability by the Holy Spirit would be that they could preserve the truth and they could transmit it intact. It it made sense because they were aware of the fact that the new covenant was the covenant of the spirit that was that was so glorious that it makes the old covenant fade into nothingness. In right. And the hyper dispensationalists will say, well this means that we can basically ignore all the other covenants. They were, you know, arbitrary and strange and and what really matters is this whole law of the spirit. But in fact, uh, as we just continue to see over and over again, all these covenants are setting a stage for us to understand what will happen in the new covenant, which mm-hmm, is in continuity mm-hmm. with all these and a completion and an elevation of all the old covenants. Each covenant gets bigger. Each covenant gets brighter. Each covenant gets um, yeah. you know, broader in, in, in who is invited into communion with God as a result of it. The new covenant being you know, the ultimate, right? Jew and right, Gentile, right, right. slave and free, male and female, all of everybody's in. Uh, everybody's invited. Right, right. It's is bigger, and it's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment that gets larger, bigger, more, more glorious all the time. But my point there is to simply say, oh, well, look at the people of the old covenant. They were going astray all the time. Jesus has to blast them, upbraid them. You use that word, um, and therefore, why wouldn't it be in the new covenant? You at least have to admit, wait, the new covenant is is radically different than the old covenant, and because of the nature of the new covenant, I'm saying it made sense for the early Christians to believe that the Holy Spirit in the church would be leading the church and would help the church to preserve the truth and to pass it down. But secondly, kind of saying the same thing in other words, it made sense for the early Christians to believe this 
because of the extraordinary nature of the church resulting from the new covenant. I mean, the old covenant church, if you will, that is the people of God in the old covenant, they possessed God's law. They possessed the old covenant priesthood, sacrificial system. They possessed the promises. They possessed the various signs of the covenant, circumcision, the keeping of the Sabbath, the dietary laws, whatnot. The new covenant church, I mean, look at the difference. The new covenant church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the head, the church's body, his own life coursing through like every vein of this of the church. It's, it's a totally different image. The church is the bride of Christ, united to him as one. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom Paul says built upon the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Here's the church in whom the whole structure of the church is joined together and grows in a holy temple, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you were also built into it for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, so my point here is simply this. Given this conception of the church, it made sense for the early Christians to believe that the Holy Spirit could and would preserve the truth and preserve the church in the truth and their ability to transmit it. Yeah, and all this changes again because Christ comes in the flesh. Christ has a body, right? And then Paul, mm-hmm. um, you know, more clearly than anyone else, talks about how you and I are the body of Christ. Nobody would even have conceived of that language in the Old Testament because uh, prior to the incarnation, God has no body, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> His pure mm-hmm. spirit. Um, mm-hmm. So by Christ taking on flesh and being a body, it, it, it's not just some throwaway term that Paul is using to say, well, you know, you guys are doing the same thing that Jesus is, you know, out there in the world. No, this is a mystical analogy for what's happening in the church. Um, to where the church becomes, I mean, in a sense, the church becomes the extension of the incarnation into the world. And I, I think that's why in, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul gets blown by the, blown off his feet, um, Jesus, the voice from heaven says, why are you persecuting me? Me, yeah, not my followers yeah. or my people, right? Yeah, that that the, would be an Old Testament way of, of phrasing that. God would say, why do you crush my people and eat their eat you know, eat their flesh? You know, why do you, yeah. you grind them like bread? No, it's why do you persecute me? Yeah, and Saul could have said at that point, what are you talking about? I've been persecuting these Christians, you know, why, why are you persecuting me? And uh, another little... Another little hint of this, too, is I love the way the book of Acts begins. Luke wrote, wrote Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he begins by saying um, the former treatise that I made about, you know, which is he's referring to the gospel that he wrote, about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until he was taken up. It's almost like now I'm going to tell you what, he, what Jesus continued to do by the Holy Spirit in his church. And that's what the book of Acts is. Yeah, and I have to think. It's uh, incredible. Well, I'm. You know, I don't want to presume to know what was going on in Paul's mind, but you know, as he's writing this, uh, you know, great treatise mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians about the body of Christ, uh, if that experience that he had on the road to Damascus is going through his head, if that's like not the basis for his understanding mm-hmm. of what the mystical body of Christ, the church, is in that moment, that the seeds of that are planted there. Yeah, it could very well be. Okay, so so again, we're talking, we're asking the question: 
why, why did it make sense for the early Christians to believe what J. N. D. Kelly describes them as believing, that believing that the Holy Spirit would be working through the church in a special way through the magisterium to preserve the church and the truth, to even develop the truth through, through, through the church and in the church? Why does it make sense? Well, first of all, because they had a grip on the fact that the new covenant was so extraordinarily, as such an extraordinary advancement over the old covenant. And then secondly, because they had a conception of what the church was, that this mystical body of Jesus Christ, a, a, a veritable extension of the incarnation. I, I remember we used to say in, in my evangelical world that we are his hands, we are his feet, we are Jesus' voice in the world. You know, um, The concept they had of the church is, is being the home of the Holy Spirit that was led by, I mean, whose head was someone sitting on the throne of heaven and earth. Okay, and then third is this. It made sense, again, because of the example the apostles had left them. I'm referring to Acts 15 again, where you have this gigantic theological dispute break out, and the apostles and elders of the church, the presbyters of the church, the bishops of the church, meet in council. They resolve this theological issue, this dispute. They issue a decree that contains the words, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us. I mean, with this example before their eyes, I mean, it makes sense that the early Christians would have believed that the Holy Spirit would continue to lead the church in a similar fashion. I mean, or to put it in the reverse, why would they think, okay, here's the example we have, and now what, what we believe is the second the apostles die, it, everything's just up for grabs. The Holy Spirit's not leading us anymore. Um, you know, we can go meet in council, we can decide things, but it's just, uh, it's just our point of view. And uh, every believer out there has got a perfect right to rethink it for themselves, you know. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, and then number four. It made sense for the early Christians to think in this way because of what Paul wrote to his successor, Timothy, where, again, in 2 Timothy, Paul assumes, and I, I, I use that word, I chose that word specifically. Paul assumes that the substance of his teaching will be preserved by the Holy Spirit through Timothy and through Timothy's successors, through the magisterium. When he, when he wrote to Timothy, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit. Guard it by the Holy Spirit. Be strong in the grace that is in you. What you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul's assuming something there. And of course, you know, we could expand on this with so much that we covered when we were in our Solar Scriptura series. I think all the apostles seem to assume this when many of them go off and don't write anything, you know, or, or, or when many of them go off and write just a tiny bit, like John writing these three short letters and saying twice in those letters, you know, I, I have a lot more I want to say to you, but I don't want to use pen and ink. I don't want to use paper. I want to wait till I'm with you where we can talk, you know, face to face. The way that the apostles act assumes that the body of their doctrine, the essential teaching that they want Christians to know, is going to be preserved in some way other than writing. To look at the converse of that, if you want to take the stand that um, you know uh, is in some you know particular Christian traditions, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, you know Latter Day Saints, Seventh Day Adventists, a lot of different uh, groups to various degrees, but some who believe that um, everybody fell away after the death of the last apostle, then you're assuming mm -hmm. the opposite. You're assuming that Titus and Timothy are apostates. I mean, that's what you have to assume, right? <laughs> you have to assume you mean, that... 
that you mean because of the fact that they think because of the fact th that if they're around if they live longer than all the apostles mm -hmm. um then by the time that the last apostle dies if timothy and titus are still rolling around and the whole church has fallen away that would include timothy and titus well, I guess you could say that they were like two lone voices trying to preach the truth and everybody else was falling away or something well, but like, the, like that. But, but yeah. think about the logic of that. Like it, yeah. Peter had no successes. Nobody Peter taught it ever stuck with, right? Or nobody, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. James taught it ever stuck with. Only two people that it ever stuck with were Timothy and Titus. That's also insane, right? Yeah, it, yeah. When you take these points um, cumulatively and you add them together, you've got, well, let me make the fifth one and then we'll tie it all together. Okay, the fifth one is this. It made sense for the early church to believe this because of the extraordinary promises that Jesus made to the church before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I mean, think about it like this. What exactly is being communicated? What is being communicated when Jesus says things like the following to his apostles? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Okay, he starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine now, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you always until the end of the age. Or when Jesus says to them, I will send the Holy Spirit and will lead you into all the truth, I will not leave you alone, okay? You know, we are talking about Timothy and Titus and everybody. I will not leave you alone. Or when Jesus says, we'll get to this soon next week, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not, be, will not prevail. When you think about these, and there are more, when you think about these extraordinary promises, I mean, would you say that what is being communicated is is something like this? Um, the, mo the moment the apostles die, the church is going to fall into rank heresy. And it's, it, in fact, it's going to start teaching salvation by works, an apostate gospel. And it's going to basically teach this for 15 centuries straight until Martin Luther comes along. It beggars belief. But again, just to, uh, to put myself back into the um, mm -hmm. understanding I would have had as a young evangelical Christian reading these things. When I would have read things like Jesus saying, go make disciples of all nations. I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. Mm -hmm. um, I would have individualized those promises. I would have taken them as reading the Bible in my room alone and feeling like Jesus was saying to me, you know, the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. will lead you, Matt, into all truth. Right, uh, because I didn't even have a cons. I didn't have like a church box in my head to put these things in. I didn't have an ecclesiology at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that I, you know, until sort of later got into some anti-Catholic stuff and started to see what the arguments were that I would start to have to wrestle with these texts in that way. But I think for a lot of Christians, um, and again, this goes this goes back to um, something we were talking about uh, in the online community the other day. You know, we might think, how arrogant is it? For the church to believe that um, it can be God's voice in the world, or the church to believe yeah, that um, it was the uh, it was the face of Christ, um, mm -hmm. you know, to all it came in contact with, when in fact I talked like that as an evangelical Christian all the time, and I heard it in youth conferences and retreats that you were the only Jesus some people would ever see, right? You're little Christ. You're His hands and feet in this world, right? You, not a church, though. Right, like, because I individualized all these things rather than understanding them the way that the early church understood them, which was as promised to the church. Yeah, and though even though you individualized it, you didn't believe it. Meaning this, that even though you said the Holy Spirit's leading me, all you had to do was look around and see there were just tons of other Christians who didn't agree with you. Well, that didn't occur so, to me until 
Yeah, so that would have been a problem years, right, but still. right there. Okay, add these five together just quickly, okay? The early church sees that the new covenant is, is of such splendor that it makes the old covenant just fade away into dust. The new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit. It looks at what the, it looks at the teaching of the apostles on the church, that it is the very body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. It looks at the promises Jesus made, you know, I will be with you always. I'll give you the Spirit and lead you. I will not leave you alone. It looks at the example of the apostles and the and the elders meeting to decide things in councils. You know, it, it looks at all these points. What's the fourth one that I forgot? Yeah, well, Paul saying to Timothy, you know, again, guard by the Holy Spirit, pass it on. The assumption of the apostles, the early church looked at all of these things, and what they saw in it was, we can trust that the church is the home of the Holy Spirit, and in a special way, the Holy Spirit, working through the successors to the apostles, will keep us in the truth, will develop the truth, will teach us the truth, will guide us forward, will lead the church. And, you know, and that's why, I mean, that's why you read Ignatius of Antioch, for instance, one of the earliest post-apostolic writers, he's, you know, his writings are some say 107 AD, 110 AD, 117. It's right in there early. And he's, he's saying where the bishop is, there is Christ. And the church must be around the bishop. And the only Eucharist that is valid is one that is, you know, that is done under the, the you know, he, he just has a conception of the church that he believes is um, the result of the Holy Spirit's leading. I think that Father Francis Sullivan, I've quoted him a couple times, I think he hits the nail on the head in his book, Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church. Okay, Father Francis is, he's describing this development of what we refer to as the monarchical bishop, okay? That is the, the, the ascendancy of the idea that there's one bishop in every major city, and the bishop is the is uniquely the successor to the apostles. All of that we talked about last week too. He's describing this development, and he explains why he believes that the Holy Spirit led the church in this development. Um, this is what he says: By the third quarter of the second century, every church that we have information about, with the exception of Alexandria, had a single bishop. On the basis of okay, here's his case now. On the basis of the following facts that this development took place within so short a time within the whole church without any resistance on the part of presbyters or people, that is none that we know about, that these bishops were accepted throughout the whole church as the legitimate successors of the apostles. The conclusion is drawn, and he's saying the conclusion I draw is that this development must have been guided by the Holy Spirit and must have been part of God's design for the church. It is in this sense that I would claim that it is, that is the monarchical bishop, is a divine institution. And then right away, listen to what he adds. I do not claim to have provided a strict exegetical or historical proof of this. I agree that it depends on what one is prepared to believe about the guidance of the church by the Holy Spirit and I don't know if I can emphasize enough how clear it has become to me that this really is the key. It's a different view between Protestant and Catholic um, of, of the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the church. Because whereas he sees this as evidence, you know, these points that he's made, he sees them as evidence that the Holy Spirit led the church to develop the monarchical bishop 
Rick, you know, the, the threefold hierarchy of bishop, presbyters, and deacons, and whatnot. Um, my Protestant friends will say, no, the Holy Spirit did not lead the church in this. This, was a, this is an example of early departure from the New Testament, and this is something we need to reject because you can't find in the New Testament the bishop being um, put in this position. So this really is the key between the two. And in fact, Matt, here's the problem that I found myself facing as an evangelical Protestant and as a Baptist pastor. If I was prepared to believe that the Holy Spirit had led the church in these early centuries— if I was prepared to believe that, the Holy Spirit was in the church, it led the church in the development of its hierarchy, it led the church in its doctrinal formulations and whatnot, then I was basically on my way into the Catholic Church. I was on the road to becoming Catholic. If I wasn't prepared to believe the Holy Spirit had led, led the church, which was my position as a Protestant, then why did I trust the decision they made on the most fundamental issue of all for a Protestant? And that is the formulation of the canon of Scripture, the New Testament, those exact 27 books of the New Testament. That was the question. That was the dilemma, really, that I faced. Why did I trust them? And I had a conversation. I've related this to you um, a couple of years ago with an, with an old friend from the church that I was pastor of, in which I brought this up to him. And I asked him, I said, do you believe that the Holy Spirit was leading the church leading the bishops of the church as they met in these councils of Rome, Hippo, Carthage, and whatnot in the late 4th century, do you believe that the Holy Spirit was leading them so that the decision they made about these exact 27 books we have in our New Testament is a decision that is true and, and that is binding, led by the Holy Spirit, infallible if you want to use the, the term? And his answer was, yes. <laughs> and I said, you do? And he said, and I, I said, okay, explain, you know, say, say more. And he said, well, he said, since the Bible is the foundation for us, Sola Scriptura, since it's the foundation of our worldview as Christians, the Holy Spirit had to lead the church infallibly on this issue. And I said, uh, and so does it, what about all the other doctrines that that same church was teaching at the time that are fully Catholic? Um, he said, well, no, I don't believe the Holy Spirit led on those. And I said, does it bother you at all that those same councils decided on the Old Testament that Catholics have? He said, no. And I, I, I mean, I was, I was dumbfounded at this point. And I said, explain. And he said, well, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads and sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't lead. You know what? I, unexamined, I might have made the same argument, um, you know, before I, I really started kind of digging into things. Because also, the earliest witnesses that we have that Christians really did believe that mm -hmm. Jesus is God are the same early witnesses that also believe that the Eucharist really is his body and blood. When, uh, you know, the, when St. Ignatius is talking about, you know, how people who, you know, deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you know, mm -hmm. sh shouldn't be followed, he's actually making an argument about the reality of what's happening in the Eucharist. Right. So mm -hmm. these same witnesses are are that that we go to for the divinity of Jesus, for the understanding of the Trinity, for uh, all kinds of things, are the same ones that, in continuity, eventually decide on the canon of Scripture. The only other thing that you can believe, well, only other couple things you can believe, is that the Holy Spirit tapped out for about two hundred and fifty years, popped back in to let us know what books should have been in the Bible and then popped back out until the 1500s. The other option is we got an infallible book from an apostate body. Yeah, and that's all, crazy. 
and it all looks just like special pleading. Yeah, you know, if the church, if that same early church that refers to altars in the churches, that describes the Eucharist as a sacrifice, that believes in baptismal regeneration, that has bishops as successors to the apostles, you know, that's the same church that meets to to formally De, you know, define for for the church broad, broadly. You know which books do we accept, and it, it it sounds just like Calvin, like you said. You know that quotation from Calvin in his letter to to Satellito, where he says, "Fathers and councils are of authority, but only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word." Which sounds from for me as a Protestant, it sounds like a statement of humility. You know. You know, these guys are authoritative, but only if they accord with the rule of the word. We want to make sure we hold up the rule of the word. But then as soon as you ask, well, who decides what the word is teaching so that you'll know whether the fathers and councils are are, are, are matching up or not, then what does Calvin have to say? He has to say, well, I do. And again, that's or, what happens. Or, and and this, is the, this is the sort of sickening feeling that I had is I realized that I was just trading arrogance you know it's arrogant for the church mm-hmm. to say that uh she is the guardian and uh purveyor mm-hmm. of of the truth regarding the scriptures don't they understand no that's me <laughs> right um yeah. all i'm saying is that it's arrogant for you to say it but it's truth when i say it um again it, it, this yeah. is not a very self-aware thing that i'm saying at the time because i'm just saying well this is obviously what the bible says but that was that was luther's issue too luther's issue was well, if I just tell everybody just to go by the scriptures, then obviously they'll all come to the same conclusions that I did, when in fact yeah. they come to their own conclusions. And, and again, this was obviously not the intention based on all seven of those points that you just made. Uh, and then the five making the case forms that came right after that. The logical thing would have been that it would have been guarded and preserved by a group of people even under the pain of martyrdom maybe perhaps especially mm-hmm. under the pain of martyrdom, given the stakes that, that would have preserved this promise of Christ. Um, you know, the, another way that I thought of this arrogance question, you know, is like, okay, so it's, it's arrogant to believe that when all the bishops in the world meet together and decide something, it's true. It's arrogant to believe that, but it's not arrogant for me to go into my office with, with the two other elders at our church and excommunicate someone. Yeah, or me in my bedroom as a teenager reading it and being like, well, this is obviously, yeah, this is obviously what this means. By the way, you just reminded me, we had seven points of summarizing where we've come and then five points making the case for the early church's view that's of That's an even 12. That, that's 12 after the 12 apostles. Well, good. So, so the numerologists among our listenership <laughs> will get really excited by that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the, anyway. Pope next, next week, week right? Look, yeah, we're going to look at Peter and the papacy next week and and then weave that into the discussion we've been having. But I hope that our listeners catch the weight of the fact that we've been on authority for nine episodes before we even start talking about the Pope. The Pope is not somebody who appears out of the blue, um, that there's this whole entire framework mm-hmm. um, that you kind of have to understand in order to understand the papacy. So hopefully we've laid a bit of ground for that. Uh, in the meantime, we welcome your questions and your conversations, chnetwork.org, to find our materials uh, at the Coming Home Network. But if you want to get involved in the conversations related to um, on the journey, uh, I especially in check, uh, invite you to check out the Shows and Resources tab at community.chnetwork.org. Ken and I hang out there all the time and uh, correspond and uh, and share 
all kinds of interesting things in there. In the meantime, Ken, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next okay. week. Okay. Thank you, Matt.